Welcome to Focus Culture, a new audio series produced by Evernote. I'm your host, Forrest Bryant, and I am excited by what we have in store. Focus Culture is where organization, passion, and creative thinking meet. You see, we here at Evernote believe that when people find their focus, they have the power to do great things, whether that's elevating their work, transforming their lives, or even changing the world. To prove it, we'll talk with people who are doing all of those things, from entrepreneurs and productivity experts to artists, scientists, and educators. We'll meet them in their domain and in ours. We'll try to see the world through their eyes, and we'll uncover the approaches and strategies that make them successful. We'll also expand on the foundation we set in our previous podcast series, Taking Note, through interviews and stories that reach beyond this format, into articles, video, and other media. So, that's what this podcast aims to do. Now here's a question for you. What do you aim to do? What are your goals? Or more to the point, what kind of a person do you want to become? Well, one thing is for sure, getting there is all about change, and that begins with the habits that shape your days and by extension, your life. Which brings us to James Clear. Now, if you don't know that name, James is a writer dedicated to the power of using tiny changes to achieve remarkable results. His approach has inspired hundreds of thousands of people to change their lives through small daily improvements, and it's also led to a best-selling book called Atomic Habits. With the Evernote community exploring the potential of habits through our own Ever Better Challenge, I'll tell you all about that at the end of the episode, what better way to kick off focus culture than by sitting down with James Clear? We spoke in late December 2018. So James Clear, thank you so much for taking a little time to chat with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to talk with you. Right now, everyone is out there setting goals, right? I want to lose 20 pounds. I want to run a 10K. I want to quit smoking. But if I read your take on this issue correctly, maybe people are missing the point a little bit. Yeah. So this is coming from someone who set goals for you know many different areas of their life. You know, I would set goals for the grades I wanted in school or the weights I wanted to lift in the gym and all kinds of things. And at some point I realized that Sometimes I did what I set out to do, but a lot of the time I would fail. And so it was like, well, clearly setting the goal is not the thing that is determining whether I'm making progress or not. And so then the question is like, well, what does? And I came across this idea uh, from Scott Adams, the cartoonist behind the Dilbert comic, where he talked about this difference between systems and goals. And I started to dig into it a little bit more and think about it with my own like kind of process for building habits. And the eventual conclusion I came to is that you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. So I would define it as your system is the collection of habits that you follow each day. And it's really those habits that determine how far you uh, venture in any given direction or project. It's not the goal or the ambition that you have at the outset. And that's not to say the goals are totally useless. Like they can be very useful for setting a sense of direction or developing clarity, knowing where you're going to spend like your time and attention. They, they sort of point you in the right, on the right path. But once you've done that, once you're like, okay, this is the thing I want to work on. It's more useful, I think, to set the goal on the shelf and focus instead almost exclusively on your system, on the processes and habits that you follow each day. And uh, so that's kind of my fundamental approach to systems over goals. You can use goals to set a direction, but 90% plus of your time should be spent focusing on the habits and systems. 
So, right, the goal can orient you towards a target or towards a direction you want to go in, but it's the actual systems, the actual habits that you put in place that can, A, get you there and also get you past that point, right? Because I think a lot of times when we focus on a goal, we're putting a lot of weight on this one little target. And maybe we hit it, maybe we don't. Uh, We've got a lot of invested it in terms of our happiness, in terms of our self-worth. So maybe it's better to not, not put the focus there. Yeah. And it sounds, once you hear it stated, it sounds like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. But if you look at what people do, uh, we often do very different things. Like one of the distinctions I like to make here is that achieving a goal only changes your life for the moment. Like we think that what we need are these outcomes. We think, oh, I want a best-selling book or I want to lose 40 pounds or I want to, you know, have a clean room. But like, say that you look in your garage and it's all messy or your room is all cluttered. And you set a goal to have a clean room or have a clean house. Well, if you get really motivated and clean all of that up, then you do have a clean house for now. But if you don't change the sloppy, messy pack rat habits that led to a dirty house in the first place, then you just end up right back where you were three or four weeks later. Hmm. And so the, the lesson here is that we often think the outcome is the thing that needs to change, but it's not. The thing that really needs to change are the habits behind the outcome. In a sense, a messy room is just a natural result of messy habits. And so this is true for many different areas of life, that your outcomes are just kind of this like lagging measure of your habits. Like your weight is a lagging measure of your eating habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning habits. And so really the thing to change is the system and the outcome will take care of itself. So I'm going to ask the stupid question here. What exactly is a habit and where do these things come from? Hmm. Yeah. So the technical definition of a habit is a behavior that has been repeated enough times to be done more or less automatically, um, more or less without thinking or on autopilot. And so, you know, common habits are things like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or unplugging the toaster after each use, all of this stuff that you can do in just a few seconds or, you know, maybe two minutes or less. And, um, and usually you're doing it without thinking. Now we use the phrase habit to mean other things. Like you might say, I want to get in the habit of writing every week, or I want to get in the habit of going to the gym. And I know what you mean when you say that, like, you mean, I want to do it consistently, Mm -hmm. but you're never going to, you know, like writing, for example, is about the most effortful thing you can do. You're thinking very carefully about how the sentences should be worded and revising and editing and so on. It's never going to be something that you just do entirely on autopilot without thinking. And so this is a, maybe a distinction between what is a habit, something you can do automatically and what is a routine, something that you do consistently. And I think uh, we can come back to this down the road, but basically Habits can be very useful for initiating routines. So like the process of writing might be effortful, but you can get in the habit of maybe you wake up, you pour yourself a glass of water and you sit in the chair at the desk. And that can be done pretty much without thinking. It's just kind of your morning habit. And then once you're in the position, you can start to think carefully about what happens in the next sentence. So it's kind of like habits can be an entrance ramp, like the entrance ramp to a highway. They can be kind of the onboarding sequence for a bigger routine. But the second part of your question was, what purpose do habits serve? Why do we build them? And this is a good question because it it helps you understand why your brain builds habits, why we kind of have all these things, good or bad. And so the way that I like to think about it is that habits are the solutions, reliable solutions, solutions you can predict will work again and again, 
to the recurring problems in your environment. So for example, each time that you pull your shoe on in the morning, in a sense, that's a problem that you have to solve. You have this untied shoe. And the first time that you do it, you have to think carefully about how to make the lube and how to tie the knot. And then as time goes on and you do it 100 or 500 or 1,000 times, pretty soon you can tie your shoes. You can apply that solution to the problem without thinking about it. You can think about your to-do list for the day or have a conversation with your spouse or whatever. And this is the role that habits play. They allow you to solve a problem without having to focus conscious attention and energy on it. They allow you to shift your attention elsewhere while you're solving the problems of life. And so for this reason, you can see why it's incredibly useful for your brain to be able to spot opportunities that are rewarding, spot problems that need to be solved and apply the solution without you needing to really think about it very much. And this also explains a little bit why we fall into bad habits. Because all habits serve you, that is, they solve a problem that your brain identifies. So, for example, we all, every single day, face the problem of needing to get calories to get energy and survive. And so, your brain is like this reward detector where it's always looking through your environment to try to find, like, oh, do I see calories that I need to consume so that I can have enough energy to make it through the next day? So, if you see something like a donut that's on a counter... In some deep primal part of your brain, your brain is identifying that as, okay, I'm a human, I have energy needs, I need to get calories, and this donut is very rewarding. It has sugar and tastes great and calories, and I need to get that. And of course, you're never actually saying that to yourself, but in some deep part of your brain, this is sort of the calculus that's going on. So a problem is identified, a solution is spotted. And then you go into this automatic mode where you take a bite of the donut because it ends up resolving the craving that you have or the, uh, the problem that you need to solve. In the case of bad habits, it's often true that they solve an immediate problem like that, like getting calories, while not solving or not serving us in the long run. So, you know, the long-term outcome of eating donuts every day is not good. Mm-hmm. But with good habits, it's often the reverse. The immediate outcome sometimes is a little unfavorable, you know, like going to the gym requires you to sweat and apply effort and energy. It's a little bit hard up front, but the long-term outcome of going to the gym every week is very favorable. And so that's a little bit of the battle with building good habits and breaking bad ones is figuring out how to like realign that internal need to solve problems in the moment, but also get the long-term outcome that you're looking for. Yeah. So that's a really great way to look at it. And there are so many ways to solve a problem. And some of them are going to be positive and some of them are going to be negative. And some of them are going to take you completely away from what it is that you actually need to be doing to solve that problem. And I'm also really intrigued by how this ties into this whole notion of the habit loops. So could you talk about that a little bit more? So basically, I think it's helpful to divide a habit into four stages so that you can understand like what stage am I in right now or how does a habit work? And by doing that, it gives you different points of intervention for building good habits and breaking bad ones. And that's ultimately my, my hope with writing Atomic Habits and with developing this framework is that I'm not just looking to help you understand what a habit is. I'm also trying to help you understand what to do to actually build a good habit or break a bad one. It needs to be very actionable. And so I think these four steps uh, can give us a very actionable framework to use. So the first step is the cue. And there's some kind of cue that prompts each habit. It could be something like your phone buzzing in your pocket. That's a cue. 
Uh, in that case, it's related to like touch. It could be like seeing that donut on the counter. In that case, it's a visual cue, but it, it could be any of the senses, but it's something that catches your attention and prompts the habit of answering your phone or eating the donut or whatever. The second stage is the craving. And this is the stage that separates my model from some of the others that are out there. And I think it's very important because it's about how you interpret the cue and it explains why different people can have different habits in the same circumstance. So for example, let's say you have two people and they walk into a room and there's a pack of cigarettes on the counter. One person who's a smoker, they might see that cue and they immediately have a craving to smoke. So the, the cue is followed by a craving and that drives their response to pick up a cigarette. The second person, though, who's never smoked a cigarette in their life, they look at it and to them, it's just neutral. It's just something that's in the environment. And so it's really about that interpretation that determines whether or not you take action. So we could say that craving is kind of like the motivational force that like drives you to act. And then the third stage is the response. That's the, the actual habit itself. And then finally, there is a reward. And the reward is basically the outcome of the behavior. I already mentioned a little bit that we have both an immediate outcome, like that donut tasting sugary and sweet in the moment, and you have an ultimate outcome, like you gain weight because you're eating donuts each day. And so it's really the immediate outcome, the immediate reward that drives habits. And it's like a positive signal that tells your brain, hey, this was enjoyable. You should do this again next time. And so one of the keys with getting good habits to stick is that if you choose the form of that habit that leads to the most satisfaction in the moment. So for example, with exercise, if you, in, you know, I enjoy lifting weights, but not everybody wants to lift weights like a bodybuilder or something. And that's fine. There are many forms of the exercise habit. You know, you could like go for a daily walk or do yoga or Pilates or rock climbing or kayaking. And the, the point I'm making here is that you want to choose the form of exercise that makes you feel best in the moment, mm. the one that you enjoy. Because if it's enjoyable, if it's rewarding at fourth stage, then you have a reason to repeat it in the future. And so those four stages, cue, craving, response, reward, I think help you understand what is actually going on behind the scenes each time you repeat a habit and also give you four different places to intervene for building good habits or breaking bad ones. So this is also important because obviously the more we understand about what's going on in our own heads, the easier it's going to be to be deliberative about making some sort of an effective change. You mentioned how making sure that the immediate reward is really rewarding is, is a great way to move a habit. Is it about hacking one part of that loop or should we try to shift the entire thing at the same time? Yeah, I think the, the best way to think about it is like tools in a toolbox. You know, like if you're going to hang a picture, then you might need a hammer and maybe you need like a level or a ruler. And so you do need a couple different tools, but maybe you don't need a screwdriver or, um, you know, a jackhammer or a drill or a saw or something like that. And so these four different stages, they're, they're kind of like four different tools. And depending on the circumstances, you may need different tools. And sometimes it's helpful to use a couple and sometimes you only need one and that's fine. So like, for example, when I was building my flossing habit, I noticed that one of the things that was preventing me from flossing consistently is that I would brush my teeth every night, but I wouldn't remember that the floss was in like the bathroom drawer. It was just kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so I would forget about it. Mm. So I bought a little bowl and put it right next to my toothbrush 
and put the floss in the bowl. And now I brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick the floss up. It's like right there. It happens right after. And making that visual, which is really about the cue, it's really about that first stage, making it obvious, that was really all I needed to do to build that habit. And so in that case, I really only needed one adjustment in order to stick with the habit. Hmm. So our whole lives are made up of these tiny little habits, which are just for running unconsciously, which is why they're habits, all the time. Some of them are positive, some of them are negative. Is it more important to try to focus on building positive habits or removing negative habits, or can we even spin a negative into a positive? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the honest answer here is it depends. But if I'm just generally recommending, I would usually recommend that people start by building a good one Mm -hmm. rather than by breaking a bad one. And the reason that I recommend that is that building a good habit, kind of like a plant growing, like how one plant can crowd out another, that good habits can often crowd out bad habits naturally. So for example, let's say that you have a bad habit of you're like, oh, you know, I get home and I watch so much TV, like I watch three hours of TV a night or something, and I should probably not do that. So that's, you want to break this television habit. And then on the other hand, you're also like, oh, you know, I need to get in shape and exercise more. So you want to build this exercise habit. Well, if you focus on, you know, like, okay, I come home from work and I change into my workout clothes and that's the habit that you're, that you start to build. And then you, you know, focus on the next step of getting to the gym and so on. Well, if you get to the gym, then you're there working out, you're focused on, you forgot about the television habit entirely. You're only focused on the exercise one right now. But when you're at the gym for an hour, you're not watching, you're not on the couch watching Netflix or whatever. And so you kind of like you naturally reduce or curtail the television habits. Yeah. And that also ties back to what you were saying earlier about how a lot of the things we think of as habits are really routines that we want to build, but we can trigger those routines through the use of habits. So creative writing is an example, or going to the gym is another example. Just if we focus on the immediate triggers to that routine, then maybe we can start to get into the routine. That's right. So the example I just gave about a change in my workout clothes, that's really all that I focus on when it comes to my own exercise habit or gym habit at this point. I know that if I change in my workout clothes, pretty much everything else is already decided. Like I'll get in the car, I'll drive to the gym, I'll get into the bar, I'll do the workout as long as I change into my workout clothes. Something similar happens each morning. And I like to refer to these moments as like decisive moments because they're very small moments. You know, changing your clothes only takes two minutes, but they kind of determine what happens the next chunk of time. You know, the next two hours are kind of shaped by that two minutes. Something similar happens in the morning where I sit down and either I open up Evernote and I start writing the next article that I'm going to work on, or I go to ESPN and I check the latest sports news. <laughs> and what happens in the next like hour is really determined by what happens in like those first 45 seconds. And it's really that decisive moment, that habit of which one I open that determines uh, the next chunk of time. And so the, the lesson here is that for a lot of habits, what you're really focused on is not not the big thing. You're focused on like the first two minutes. And this is why I like to suggest to people to, if you're trying to build a new habit, to use what I call the two-minute rule, which basically says, take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to the first two minutes. So, you know, um, do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat or, you know, read, read one book every month becomes read one page or something like that. Mm-hmm. The thing about this is people have heard stuff like this before, you know, like they've heard start small or stick with baby steps or things like that. But even when you know that you should start small, it's still really easy to start too big. And so 
I'll hear from readers who will say things like, okay, I know that I should start small. I want to build this habit of like running three days a week. And uh, because it should be small, I'll just run for 15 minutes. But even that's like way bigger than what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about like you put on your running shoes and you step out the door and you lock the door. And if you do anything else, even if you take a single step, it's just a bonus. And that sounds kind of silly to people at first because they're like, okay, you know, clearly I know their actual thing is to go for a run. Like I'm not actually just trying to put my shoes on and get out the door and then walk back inside. But the key insight here is that you have to master the art of showing up. Like if you don't become the type of person that puts their running shoes on three days a week, then you don't have a chance to be the kind of person who goes for a run. And so you're really just trying to instill the habit of showing up. A habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, a lot of the time we're so wrapped up in our heads to do this like lofty version of a goal to find the perfect uh, business idea or the ideal workout program or the best diet plan that we don't give ourselves permission to just show up for two minutes and be the kind of person who's there each day. And uh, once you're doing that, once you've mastered the art of showing up, then you got all kinds of options. You know, then you can improve. But the habit must be established before it can be improved. Yeah, I'd never thought about it that way, but it, this does ring very true to me. I mean, if I'm sitting down to have a writing session, uh, what do I do first? Do I actually open the draft or do I go to Twitter? If I go to Twitter, the die is cast, right? That, that's where I'm going to spend the next hour. Showing up does make all the difference. This is why I think little like environment design things can be very useful for building better habits. Like if you take the habit of like checking your phone, you know, like we do, we all do this dozens of times every day, hundreds of times. And the habit of pulling your phone out is real quick. It only takes a second. But once you've pulled your phone out, then you've kind of set what the next chunk of time looks like. It's true that you have control over, okay, well, do I check email or do I browse Twitter or do I play a video game or something else? And so you have options, but all of those options are constrained within the window of the phone. And so it was really that habit of pulling the phone out that determined what kind of what paths you have in front of you for the next chunk of time. I'm just as guilty of that as everybody else. If I have my phone next to me, I'll check it a hundred times in the morning. And so I've started to leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And that little habit gives me like three hours of uninterrupted time where I'm not responding to everybody else's agenda and I can just kind of focus on my thing. It's just a little environment design tweak, but it helps like cut off that entrance ramp to maybe some of the unproductive habits and routines. Yeah. So you mentioned how we've all heard this advice that we need to start with the baby steps and and just stick to really small things. I mean, even the title of the book, Atomic Habits, we're talking small stuff. We've all heard that. Another thing that I think a lot of us have heard, and I think I know the answer to this question, but a lot of us have heard this pop wisdom that it takes 21 days to change a habit. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, so you hear all kinds of stuff, 21 days, 30 days, uh, 66 days is a common one that you'll see running around right Mm -hmm. now because there's one study done that found that on average, it took about 66 days to build a habit. But even within that study, the range was quite wide. Um, you know, for something simple like drinking a glass of water at lunch, it was maybe two or three weeks. For something more complicated like going for a run uh, every day after work, the range for that was like eight months. It's just very broad. But the real thing I think that's important to focus on is that that question, how long does it take to build a habit? It has this implicit assumption behind it, which is, well, how long until it's easy? Uh, how long until I don't need to put effort in? And the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if you stop doing it, then it's no longer a habit. 
And so I think the key distinction to make is that habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They're a lifestyle to be lived. And what you're really looking for is to make a change that's sustainable, that you can stick with, that can be your new normal. And if you're willing to do that, then you can give yourself a lot of options and choices for ways to improve. But it's more about this commitment to getting 1% better and doing it for the long run. You also make this point that the commitment to 1% better operates in a very subtle way. You say it's akin to like an investment with compound interest. And there's this one chart in the book which really gave me an aha moment. So listeners are going to have to kind of close their eyes and visualize while I describe this. We tend to imagine progress as being very linear. It's this straight line going up and to the right. But what actually happens when we try to change a habit is it starts off very slow. We don't see changes immediately. Uh, and it sort of follows this curve upwards. So eventually, if you stick with it and keep getting 1% better, 1% better, 1% better, you will start to see this acceleration. The problem is that for a long time, the curve is lower than that picture we have of what progress means. And you call this the valley of disappointment. So my question is, how do we commit to sticking with a new habit through this valley of disappointment when we're not seeing the change we expect to see, even though really we are building the foundation for the change we want? Yeah, it's a good question. I like the, so this is also from the, that same section of the book where I use the metaphor of an ice cube, you know, like you're, if you're in a room, it's cold, you can see your breath. It's like 25 degrees. You've got this ice cube sitting on the table and, uh, you start to heat the room up 26, 27, 28, 29. Still the ice cubes there hasn't melted 30, 31. And then you get to 32 degrees and it's like one degree shift. That's no different than all the other shifts that came before it. But suddenly you hit this phase transition and the ice cube melts and habits are not exactly like that, but it's kind of like that. It kind of feels like that a lot. You know, it's like, Oh, I've been running for a month and I still can't see any change in my body. Like, why do I do this? You know, what, what am I doing wrong? Or, uh, you know, you're studying a new language for an hour each night and you still haven't learned it, even though you've been doing it for two months. And you're like, oh, you know, I put all this effort in. And I still don't know the language. Complaining about working for a few months and not getting results is kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube from 25 to 31 degrees. Like, it's not that the work was wasted. It's just being stored. And so knowing that, knowing that you're building up potential, that you're banking work and putting in the reps and uh, accumulating the potential that will one day be released, just knowing that can be helpful, um, that, that, that the process works more like that. But the other thing, and the answer to your question of, okay, you know, we all deal with this, we all feel this struggle, uh, what can we do about it? Well, there are kind of two things I'd like to recommend. So the first is trying to find some visual measure of your progress while you're waiting for the rewards to accumulate in the background. You know, like uh, let's take the example I just gave of going for a run, you know, let's say every week for a month. Well, each time you go for a run, let's say you're doing it like three days a week, you could just create what's called a habit tracker where each day you put a little X on the calendar each day that you go for a run. And that, that can count for a lot because it's easy to forget how far you've come or how much work you've put in uh, when you have a bad day. And so the first thing for maintaining that motivation in the long run is having some kind of visual measure of progress. One of the most motivating feelings is the feeling of progress. And so it's nice to be able to prove that to yourself. The second thing that you can do to stick with habits in the long run and get through that kind of value of disappointment 
is social reinforcement. So a lot of the habits that we form are socially reinforced. They're a result of the tribe of the people that we're surrounded by. And this is true on many levels. Like, for example, say that you step onto an elevator and you turn around to face the front or you have a job interview and you wear something nice. You wear a suit and a tie or a dress. Now, there's no reason that it has to be like that. Like you could face the back of the elevator or you could wear a bathing suit to a job interview, but you don't because it violates the expectations of the people in that room. It violates the expectations of the tribe and the habit of dressing up nicely. The habit of wearing something professional is driven by the social expectation. Same thing is true for other habits. Like you move into a new neighborhood and you step outside on Tuesday night and you see all of your neighbors have their recycling bins out. And you're like, Oh, I guess I need to sign up for recycling. Like that's what people like us do here. And so there's this social reinforcement of the recycling habit. And so to apply this to pretty much any habit to get it to stick for the long run, I think the key insight is you want to join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. You want to join a group where the thing that you want to do, the person you want to become is standard in that group. Because when habits go with the grain of the expectations of the group, they're very attractive because performing them helps you fit in and belong. And when habits go against the grain of the expectations of the group, they're very unattractive. Like imagine someone who joins a CrossFit gym, you know, they're actually trying to build the habit of working out, but there are all these other habits, like the type of shoes you wear, the knee sleeves you buy, or signing up for paleo meal plans or things like that. And those habits, all of a sudden you start to soak those up just because that's what all the other people there are doing too. So those two strategies, visualizing your progress and joining a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior can be powerful ways to get a habit to stick, even when you feel disappointed by the results. Hmm. Now, the book, Atomic Habits, goes into great detail about the actual mechanics of making a change to a habit. And you've boiled it all down into four laws that tie directly to those four stages of the habit loop that we talked about earlier, the cue, the craving, the response, and the reward. Could you give us just sort of the quick Cliff's Notes version of those four laws? Sure. So for the cue, for the first stage, the first law of behavior change is to make it obvious. So you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, kind of like that example I gave earlier of the floss sitting right next to the toothbrush. For the second law of behavior change, which is related to craving, you want to make your habits attractive. So the more attractive a habit is, the more likely you are to do it. And this comes back to what I just mentioned about social reinforcement. You know, So if all your neighbors have their recycling bins out, then the habit of recycling is more attractive because it helps you fit in with the community. It makes you feel like you're, you belong. So the more attractive a habit is, the more you stick to it. Second law. Third law, make it easy. So I mentioned the two-minute rule earlier, uh, but pretty much anything that makes habits effortless, convenient, easy, simple, it increases the odds that you're going to perform it. So the third law of behavior change is make it easy. And then the fourth law of behavior change is to make it satisfying. And this is about the reward. Uh, and so I mentioned early on about choosing the form of a habit that satisfies you the most, like the form of exercise or rock climbing or yoga or whatever that you enjoy. Because if it makes you feel good in the moment, you have a reason to repeat it in the future. So the fourth law is to make it satisfying. And so those four laws make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. They give you a toolkit, a set of principles to follow for building a good habit. 
And then if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert each of those four. So rather than make it obvious, you want to make it invisible. Rather than make it attractive, make it unattractive, make it easy, you make it difficult. And rather than making it satisfying, you make it unsatisfying. And uh, so those give you a set of ways to, to reduce the likelihood of falling into a bad habit. And of course, the book goes into greater detail on all four of those. Right. So we started off with separating the notion of habits from goals. But there's a flip side to this too, because you actually position habits as sitting in this middle ground between goals and outcomes and identity or our beliefs about ourselves. So a lot of the time we start by focusing on the wrong thing. What I mean is that we focus on the outcome. You know, like someone might say, all right, I want to lose 40 pounds. And so in order to do that, I'm going to follow this diet plan and work out four days a week. And then the implicit assumption is whoever I am, once I finish doing that, then that'll be the person I want to be. You know, we think about what we want to achieve and how we're going to do it. And then we just kind of let our identity come as a natural consequence. And my argument is that we can reverse that. That instead, it might be more useful to focus on who you want to become first, the type of identity you want to build. Ask yourself, who is the type of person that can achieve that outcome? So, for example, who is the type of person that could lose 40 pounds? Well, maybe it's the type of person that doesn't miss workouts. And so now your focus is becoming the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, building that identity, building habits that reinforce that identity, and then letting the outcomes come as a natural consequence. And I think that this is a more useful way to do it because we often talk about habits as the path for achieving external results, but habits are also, I think perhaps the deeper reason why they matter. They are also the path through which you reinforce your identity. You know, your habits are kind of how you embody a particular identity. And it's kind of like every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you believe that you are. So first, you're casting votes for being this kind of person. You go to the gym once or twice or whatever, and it doesn't radically change how you look at yourself. But if you keep showing up and keep casting votes, if you keep building evidence of being that kind of person, then eventually you turn around and you're like, huh, I guess I'm a fit person. Or, hmm, I, you know, I played the guitar for the uh, 52nd day in a row. I guess maybe I'm a musician. And so... Your habits are how you shape or reshape uh, your sense of self, your self-image. And I think that's the deeper reason why they matter and why it's important to think about who you want to become and not just what you want to achieve. Yeah. So how about you, James Clear? You've had a remarkable journey. You're a pretty successful guy. Who do you want to become now? What habits are you working on? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I have a couple different uh, processes where I review this each year, my annual review, uh, which is where I kind of look back on the previous year and, um, and think about what went well, what went poorly, was I able to live by my values? What adjustments should I make? And then in the summers I do what's called an integrity report where I write down my core values and kind of ask myself how I've been living by those and so on. So the short answer is it's a moving target. Uh, and so those periods of reflection are important for me. But I think in a broad sense, uh, the answer to your question is, I'm just trying to be useful. You know, I'm just trying to, like, I'm like everybody else. I, like, I want my work to matter. Um, I want to try to make a little bit of a difference with the ideas that I share. And my hope is that both the book that I've written and uh, the other work that I do, that 
at least for now, I can stay focused on habits and that uh, there will be quite a few people who use those ideas to build better habits in their lives and make some positive changes. That's awesome. And you mentioned briefly that you are an Evernote user as well. How does Evernote fit into your workflow or your day? Yeah, it's really important for my workflow. Actually, I, I do all my writing in it. Um, so pretty much all of my articles start out there. Whenever I get an idea, like a, you know, if in this conversation you mentioned something that sparks a thought for me or uh, I read something later today, uh, I'll just dump the ideas into kind of one central notebook in Evernote. And uh, so that's the holding ground. And then every now and then I'll go back through that list and start to like merge them into larger notes on a particular topic. And once I have that, um, then I will start to flesh out an actual article and start to, to write it more fully. And then once I get that first draft done in Evernote, then I actually load it onto the website and finish it up there. But yeah, it plays a, a big role in my writing process. Yeah. Well, you got a great book out of it. Atomic Habits is out from Avery Books. I personally recommend it. It's really fantastic. And you also have a newsletter, which people can sign up for at jamesclear.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You could just go to jamesclear.com slash newsletter. But if you'd like to, to check out jamesclear.com, you can also click on articles and I have them organized by topic. And so you can just poke around a little bit and see what you like. Yeah. Well, you're a fascinating guy and you've given us a lot of food for thought here. So thank you so much, James Clear, for taking a little time to chat. Wonderful. Thank you. James Clear is the author of the best-selling book, Atomic Habits, published by Avery. For more information about James, his newsletter, or his Habits Academy training program, visit him on the web at jamesclear.com. If you'd like to know more about how James's approach to the habit loop can impact the way you look at change, you'll find a companion article to this episode on Evernote's new Medium publication. Like the podcast, it's called Focus Culture. And if you're looking to change your own habits in 2019, Evernote is here to help. Check out the Ever Better Challenge. That's a free 30-day program designed to help you focus on simple, meaningful changes and build the habits you need to get there, all through Evernote. You can start at any time, so to learn more, visit everbetterchallenge.com. That's everbetterchallenge.com. You've been listening to Focus Culture, produced by Evernote, the place to find your focus at work, at home, and everywhere in between. Get started for free at evernote.com. Download the Evernote app on your iOS or Android device, or look for us in the Windows Store or the Apple App Store. For more tips and stories from the Evernote team, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Medium. I'm Forrest Bryant. Our producer is Stacy Bailey, and our audio engineer is Jay Shilliday. Thanks to James Clear for joining me in this episode, and special thanks to Jonathan Wojtek and DJ Murphy for their help in making Focus Culture possible. And thank you for listening. Until next time, stay focused. <laughs>